at the Exile on Bad Street. I'm your host, Chris Zellner. And uh, we are resuming our series here on Jim Carter Promotions in the mid-80s. And we left off in 1986, and we're about to begin 1987. So, that means I am joined by my uh, special co-host in this series, the manager of champions, the probably the greatest manager of a generation of wrestling, I would say, in the early 2000s, throughout the entire de- the decade of the aughts, and uh, has also managed well into the 2010s, although that has che- that will be changing. Uh, we'll let him talk about that as we go along. Joined by the one, the only, Jeff G. Bailey. Jeff, welcome back. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure to be here, and even bigger pleasure to hear somebody say all those great accolades about me. So, lovely. <laughs> or as, great start. Or as one guy we'll be talking about in a few minutes would say, Lex Luger, your allocates. <laughs> <laughs> Lex, not the greatest. Not the most ever. articulate man. No. No, not at all. Not at all. But anyway, we'll get started here. And uh, we left off in 1986, and now we're beginning in January 1987. And the thing about Crockett at, at this point in time, as we begin the new year, is they're continuing a lot of their feuds that they, you know, were doing in late 86. You know, coming out of Starcade, you've got your rematches, you know, Flair and Nikita still working on each other, Dusty and Tali. Um, Ronnie Garvin and Big Bubba Rogers still having their little Louisville Street fights. Um, Nikita's starting to wrestle against Ivan now in tag matches. Crusher Khrushchev and Dusty. Rock and Rolls and Raging and Ravishing are really getting going with their feud since the title change was in December. But, um, yeah, they're, they're, as we mentioned on the last show, there were some new new faces that had come in. And we'll have more new faces as we go along. But as we start 1987 here, what was, uh, as, as a fan, what, what was your mindset at the time of how the promotion was doing as a whole? Well, I had attended Starcade 86 and um, thought it was pretty much the greatest thing ever. I mean, I was, I was delighted. I had a, a front row seat and, you know, I was in Atlanta for the scaffold match. So I was on an extraordinary high for Jim Crockett promotions at that point, because that was, um, I'd done the bashes that summer. And then that Starcade was my first Starcade because I did not get to make any of the others. And, um, man, I was about as high on the promotion as I could possibly be. I thought 1986 was an incredible year. And, um, as we headed into 87, it looked like there was going to be zero fall off other than, you know, obviously the, the devastating loss of Magnum TA, which, you know, I mean, really, you know, as time passed, you realize just just how big that was and how much you missed him. But uh, still, you know, with the Nikita turn and everything going forward, and uh, I believe in January we're about to have the introduction of Vladimir Petrov to yes. uh, take Nikita's place. So uh, we were we were still going to have some Russian v. Russian action going on. Yeah, uh, the first uh, World Championship Wrestling of the new year. Vladimir Pietrov made his debut. Now, interesting story, and we talked about this on Between the Sheets before. Um, the newsletters always rumored around at the time that John Nord was going to be Vladimir Pietrov. Mm. Ooh, that would have been a whole lot better. <laughs> well, John Nord kind of supposedly backed out, uh, kind of almost at the last minute, 
So they grabbed a guy who was friends with, I think, Road Warrior Hawk named Al Blake and uh, told him to uh, shave his head. And they shaved his head at Techwood Studios that day and made him Vladimir Pietrov with no wrestling experience. Zero. He was just a just a bodybuilder they found in the gym. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, just a friend of Road Warrior Hawk. Yeah. And, and put him out there in oh, this wow. ma- major new role that, you know, was going to be a, pretty much a semi-main event heel working and get tags against Dusty Nikita and working against all the other baby faces. No wrestling experience. That's crazy <laughs> to think about. In 1987, Crockett Promotions, they're doing this. Crazy. Well, I guess they figured it worked so well with Nikita that uh, they would try try their luck again. Because, I mean, he wasn't exactly, you know, polished by any means. And, uh, boy, did that work out. Um, can't really say the same for Vladimir Petrov. Uh, he was a hell of a drug dealer. <laughs> oh. That's how he, well, yeah. I'm glad he had something going <laughs> yeah, for him. Yeah, he got busted at the airport, and um, he did do federal prison time because of it. <laughs> Yikes! But uh, real drugs or steroids? Uh, I think uh, both, actually. Well, that makes more sense. <laughs> but yeah, he, I'm sure he he definitely had all the, the the stuff you needed for a pharmacy. He was he was Doctor Death hmm. before Doctor Death. You know, when Doctor Death got caught a year later. <laughs> well, his drugs. well, that explains why he stuck around as long as he did. I guess. <laughs> But yeah, they brought him in. And I mean, when you can't even do a squash match oh. competently, you, you know you're in trouble. I mean, he's stumbling around, and then they call this thing the Russian hammer, and he jumped off and like grabbed somebody at the throat, yes. and that was his finish. Yes, yeah, he jumped off the top rope and just grabbed you by the throat, and and went. You went down, not a choke slam. You just went down. No, right? Like yeah, just. Russian yeah, hammer. Russian. It was the answer to the sickle, you know. That's <laughs> just a, a little less devastating. <laughs> and, and he was one of those guys where he's one of the, I don't know if I'll say early guys like this, but he's one of those guys that's so bad he's entertaining because he's so bad. Yes. I mean, you you see, I would agree you see with him that. on television, like, you have to watch his matches because they're so shitty. <laughs> you can't believe how shitty these matches are. And plus, he looked like, he looked great. He looked like he. Oh, he was massive. Yeah, great beard too. Great beard. He kind of looked. He yeah. kind of looked facially like Iceberg in a way, didn't he? <laughs> yes, I've never thought that before. But yeah, he kind of had that same red beard like Iceberg. That's that's interesting. If only he could work like Iceberg, he could. He would have been a major star in the business. <laughs> yeah. Sad. Sad to say. He was. He was not very good. No. So, yeah, and they were playing him up as a big deal, too. And uh, I think they caught the drift of what was coming. So in, in a, mu- a month later, they decided to do, do a little uh, shifting in the storyline, which we'll get to as we go along. But, yeah, Vladimir Pietrov makes his debut. And another guy would make his debut a, a few weeks later. But this is a bigger deal. As uh, – Fresh from championship wrestling from Florida and the darling of the after magazines in 1986, Lex Luger makes his debut on world championship wrestling on January 17th. And this was a big deal. Um, like I said, if you were a wrestling magazine aficionado like myself as a seven year old child in 1986, all you heard about was Lex Luger. And I was, and I was watching Luger 
on uh, Channel 69, well, Channel 36 at the time, with Joe Pettacino, Superstars Wrestling Block. They would play Champion Wrestling from Florida, and plus she would see him on first this week, what have you. And he's another guy. Looked amazing. Um, a, very green. Had been a heel, then turned babyface in Florida. So you, you saw him in both forms. And they bring him in he, here, and they pretty much go ahead and, and make him a heel by saying that he wants to be a member of the Four Horse from the future. Now, that brings to my question here, two-part question. One, how did, uh, how did you uh, like seeing Luger being part of this promotion now and compared to you know the hype he was getting in the Matthew magazines? And two, how, how, how interesting was it that they, wanted to, they went ahead and started this horseman storyline with this guy wanting to join the group when the group's pretty much rock solid with the four guys they had at the time? Well, I mean, first, like you, I, I was looking at the magazines, and I mean, there was no denying. If you looked at the magazines, you were being brainwashed to believe Lex Luger is the next biggest star in wrestling. Nobody else was close. This was the guy. This was the next Hogan. This was the next guy to take over the world. And I mean, bodies were a big deal at the time, and Jesus, he had a body. He had a great look with the long hair. He had, you know, he, he was a naturally arrogant prick, I do believe. So, I mean, he exuded that. And, um, you know, he showed up and you thought, wow, Lex Luger. And then he immediately starts talking about the horseman. And I was like, yes, <laughs> of course. I mean, where else would Lex Luger be but a horseman because he wants to be what everything that Tully and Rick say they are. And I just thought this guy is going to be a perfect fit for the horseman. I was, I was a huge fan of Lex Luger. I mean, immediately. And, uh, his, uh, his mumble mouth promos were a little distracting when I thought, uh, you know, he's not everything, but Jesus boy, he looked like 10 million bucks. I mean, he was the real thing. Do you, th you knew he was a star. Yeah, do you think the reason why he would take his shirt off so much during his promos was maybe to distract people from his promos sometimes? <laughs> well, I know if I would have been anywhere in charge, he'd have never had a shirt on. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've I've always told my guys they're about to make a run in or anything. Get that damn shirt off, you know? <laughs> if you got a body, show it off. I mean, what's the point of doing all that hard work? And not have everybody see it. So I'm of the the firm belief: if you have a great body, don't wear a shirt. Just just show it off. Be the man. Exactly, exactly. And the cool thing they would, you know, they did with Luger was, and this was great booking by Dusty, is they eased him into that thing where JJ was kind of not, you know, he said we're not really interested. But then he started scouting him more, and then they made him a member of Tully Blanchard Enterprises. So he was an associate <laughs> of the horseman. Yes. That was great that they had how they did that. Was genius. How they did that. Because, you know, and they slowly started to tease the essential of the horse and, and we'll talk about that as we go along. And then so so when something happens, you already got a guy ready to come in to take the spot. You know, you don't have to wait. He's, there he is. He's just ready to go. Great. It's like any other you know, any other sports team, you have a backup. When the, when, the, when the starter gets hurt or, you know, gets cut, hey, insert the backup in, you know? 
Hey, yeah. You got Lex Luger and, uh, on your backup. You had your first round pick yeah. as your backup there. So everybody was ready to see him start. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Luger, when he was in Chance Wrestling, Florida, had a, a great relationship with Barry Windham. Even though they feuded, they became friends, tag partners, what have you. Well, the next week on Worldwide Wrestling, on January 24th, Barry Windham got the moment that he desperately needed here. He wrestled Ric Flair on Worldwide in a one-match show. Now, they did this, you know, a few times in this era, where they would dedicate the whole TV show to one match. Dusty Rhodes was on commentary at ringside to make sure that this match got over. And as you mentioned, as we started to show off, you know, Magnum T.A. had the, the bad car wreck and was gone. Barry Windham is now basically replacing Magnum, which was ironic since Magnum replaced Barry Windham in the plans in, at the end of 84. So Barry Windham's back. Prodigal Sons come home. And this was Dusty's time for him to shine. And he goes out there and has one of the greatest matches of the decade with Ric Flair. And what were your thoughts on that match at the time? And how, how much did you enjoy the concept of the one-match television show? Well, I think all the ones they, they, they did were always great. I, I love that because it was always a match that you really wanted to see. I had seen Barry and Rick in a lumberjack match in Charlotte like a week prior to that one airing. And um, I was already of the mindset at that point, like Barry Windham's going to be the next guy to beat Ric Flair. And in fact, as I was watching that show, I thought they were going to put the title on Barry Windham during that show. So, uh, yeah, Barry Windham, as far as baby faces go, was always one of my favorite guys to watch Russell. He was so smooth. I mean, he's the son of Black Jack Mulligan, who was one of my favorite wrestlers growing up. And, uh, I mean, you could tell Flair just loved working with him and, uh, man, they just clicked. And I love that match. And honestly, as far as matches from 1987 go, I mean, maybe not as many times as I've watched the war games, but uh, I've watched that match a lot of times, a lot of times. It's one of Dusty. Which is weird because, you know, in the modern era, there's, there's pretty much no matches that I watch more than once. But, you know, you talk about this match from 87 that I've watched, you know, probably almost triple digit times. Well, how? here's, here's another question I just thought about. Like I said, Dusty was on commentary. So how important is it to have the booker do the announcing you know, to a re for a wrestling match or even a whole television show? Because they're the ones that they know where they want to go, and they want you to un understand what they're doing. So that's right. why Bill Wise was always so great on Mid-South, you know, whenever he was booking or had control. He, you know, or Cornet and OVW. Yeah, you know where they where they want to go. It's very. I, I think that's all. Uh, sometimes you can't always do it because the you know the booker kind of needs to be backstage, or what have you. But it's. I think it's very important to have that 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 person in an, a role where they're getting across their points to you in their own words. Right. Yeah. They. Uh, they know what you need to know, and they get it out there. And I think that's why that's always been so effective. And, I mean, that match in particular, Dusty's enthusiasm, you know, really made you think Barry Windham's going to win this match. I mean, 
I really thought, oh, they're going to do a title change. They're doing the whole episode, and, and they're definitely going to change this title. And uh, when they didn't, I was I was a little surprised, honestly, but uh, certainly not disappointed because it was a great match. And I was happy to see Flair come out with the title and uh, look forward to seeing more Flair and Wyndham matches because, like I said, I'd already seen them once in Charlotte that month, and uh, which was a big step up from the, the previous show I'd been to when – Brad Armstrong wrestled Ric Flair in the main event. I know that makes you excited, but hey, uh, I'm a Brad Armstrong it didn't guy. do a whole lot for me. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I'm a Bullet Bob guy. Well, hey, so. uh, hey, I love both of them. Brad, Brad, Brad <laughs> is not his father for sure. He was a. I mean, Brad was the flashier version of of you know the Armstrongs, and I just. That, and I was going to bring that up because, you know, Flair is working on these different types of opponents. And Brad's a guy who's starting to get some matches against Rick now. Uh, but do you think the fact that maybe you didn't like the match because it's, you know, you didn't think Brad should have been in that spot? Or what was your feeling on that? Well, I didn't think Brad Armstrong was, was a top contender for the title. And, I mean, I remember thinking when I saw that that was the match, I thought, is Flair going to get color for Brad Armstrong? Because, I mean, every Monday night I saw Ric Flair in the Greenville Memorial Auditorium. He bled. I mean, he got color for everybody. And sure enough, outside the ring, head to the post, zip, Flair comes up bleeding for Brad Armstrong. I said, <laughs> well, he's giving it his all. <laughs> Make these people get with B.A. But, I mean, you – even the diehards, you know, found it difficult to get behind Brad Armstrong. I mean, I just don't think that, that anybody could suspend their disbelief long enough to think that Brad Armstrong was going to win that match or that title. I mean, that's not a huge knock on him. It's just where he was slotted. And occasionally they would try and move him up, like give him something in an interview where Arn slaps his face or something. And, hey, Brad's going to, you know, do something with the horseman. But it always seemed to peter out real quick. And then he'd be right back to, oh, let's put him together with Tim Horner and make him an underneath tag guy. Yeah, that that, that you're right. And, and Brad at the time was slotted with, Jimmy Garvin. That was the few that they were they were doing was Brad and Jimmy Garvin, and they did the angle on television where Flair is in his Lakers starter jacket, you know, coming out on Brad's yeah. interview time, and Brad gets pissed off and Horseman attack Brad, and that was what that was the the angle that they did to set up these run this run of house show matches. And um, okay, again, you're right. I mean, he he hadn't been really established as a guy ready for that type of role. I mean, Dusty, Nikita, Barry, um, even Dick Murdoch, you know, guys like that, Ronnie Garvin, of course. I mean, guys like that are already established guys that would be, you know, Flair House Show Minimate guys. But that's the way it was kind of back then. Flair sometimes would work some of these different types of guys on some of these house shows. In Greenville, you know, you're going there every week, like you said, so sometimes you kind of have to mix it up, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I did see a lot of the same stuff there, but, you know, during that period, the same stuff was, <laughs> you know, the rock and roll versus the Midnight Express. Yeah. I went out like I ever got tired of that match because it was different every time out. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the people were with the Rock and Roll Express and they hated the Midnight Express and had that great atmosphere of, you know, people really into it and stuff. I think that's something that uh, 
you know, when I watch wrestling now and I see the crowds and stuff, you could just you can just tell the difference. People are sitting there waiting on something to happen as opposed to these people were just fully invested from when the bell rang. I mean, it, it really is night and day by comparison, but yeah. You know, this this was a very special time as far as, you know, people just really being fully into the characters and the wrestlers. And, you know, there were still people jumping the rails and trying to attack the wrestlers and stuff. So, I mean, we still had that going on. Oh, absolutely. Hell, hell yeah. Um, did you see the flair win the 60-minute draws at this time? Let's see. Where was that I mean, at? They won in Atlanta. They did, they, um, they did in Atlanta and Greenville consecutive nights in Feb- February 1st and 2nd. Yes. Okay. I saw the Greenville one because I was at that. I was looking through my little newspaper clippings here, and absolutely, I was at that. I did not mark that it was a 60-minute draw on this, which is strange because I usually did. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I got to see Flair and Wyndham probably like maybe four or five times during like this early January, February run of shows. And, uh, man. Boy, they they certainly never disappointed. I mean, definitely um, one of my favorite Flair series um, that he had during this period of time. I mean, the Dusty stuff is always going to be the Dusty stuff. But as far as, you know, wrestling and really doing long matches and, and working that really fast, I mean, Barry really pushed Rick to work a faster pace than, say, a Dusty Rhodes match. So and, 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 they really and you know uh, what? stood out. That's a great point because let's look at the guys Flair's wrestling. All right, Flair's Nikita. That's more your, your self and Nikita's power game. And so you got to deal with a big man, yep. not a great worker. So you got to work around his, his uh, limited ability. Dusty, it's more of a mind game. You know, you're playing, you know, the psychology of, with Dusty. Ronnie Garvin, you're just out there beating the shit out of each other the whole match. You're working a, a methodical pace where you're just kicking each other's asses. And then you got Barry Wyndham where, you know, you, you turn it up to 100. You know, you're working a fast pace. And things are happening. Bam, 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 bam. That That's like a law starting wrestling these days is you don't have the guys that have this variety of opponents and matches anymore like you did back then. Everything's pretty much all the, almost the same in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it always bothered me that people would always talk about Ric Flair and say, oh, Ric Flair just wrestles the same match and stuff like that. And and he did wrestle the same match with some guys because guys like Sting and Sid and Nikita, yes, he was going to hit the ropes and go up into the press slam and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, that wasn't the only match he worked, so... Well, Flair had his clearly. That's why he had his greatest hits, you know, and and that's fine. Sure, you know, yeah, it's understandable. Fan, you know, when you want to go see a you know a, an artist in concert, you want them to play the hits. You know, you don't want to go out there and play. All right, here's all my tracks off my new album. You know, <laughs> you want you want to hear the hits. You want to see the hits, and, and yeah, not every match is exactly the same. There's a formula, but there's not. I don't think there's really anything wrong with that. In a way, you know, hey, if it works, it works. That's all that matters. But, um, well, it's been the knock on Ric Flair when people try to um, shade him out of the number one spot. You know, if somebody wants to say that they think Terry Funk's the greatest of all time, then that's, that's me. 
and, and, not, and not one that I would spend more than a minute to argue. I would say, me personally, I lean towards Ric Flair, but, but if it wasn't Ric Flair, it'd be Terry Funk, and if it wasn't Terry Funk, it'd be Jerry. I can all three have a, a legitimate yeah, claim. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, we talk about Brad Armstrong. Bob Armstrong becomes a full-time Crockett guy in February, and it, it was always interesting to me to watch him here unmasked because he had been the bullet in Continental since the fall of 85, even though he was eligible to take his mask off in, in spring 86. He never did. And here he is at Crockett without the mask. Um, do you think that that took away from him because he looked older w- without the mask? Or how do you think it, that worked? Probably a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, especially when you're talking about the, the Carolinas and Georgia and stuff, everybody knew who Bob Armstrong was. He'd been around forever. And I mean, everybody knew the bullet with Bob Armstrong. But I don't think it would have hurt him to have kept the mask on and just remained a bullet because the bullet was a lot of fun. I mean, the, the bullet, he did all the Bob Armstrong stuff, but maybe a little more overly exaggerated because he was having more fun with the mask on and stuff. And I think it came across that way. I mean, me personally, I would have kept the mask on him because then it just was like, oh, yeah, there's Brad's father <laughs> as opposed to, hey, there's the bullet and he's about to whip somebody's ass, which you know, he was certainly still capable of. Yeah, I mean, you could have, you know, playing up Brad, Brad said, I'm bringing a friend of the family in. And, it's, you know, you're thinking, okay, it could be whoever. And it's the bullet. And it's like, it, it, I think that would have been awesome. I, I think that would have been a great thing to it do. Would've. Yeah. I'm, and Bob was fine at Crockett, but I think if he had been the bullet, it would have worked out a little bit better, per se. Yeah, I think so too. I just want to go back here real yeah. quick for that uh, that Ric Flair sixty minute time limit draw. Also on that card was the Road Warriors against Rick Rude and Manny Fernandez, Nikita Koloff versus Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson versus Wahoo, Lex Luger versus Baron Von Raschke, and Ivan and Vladimir against Dutch Mantel and Bobby Jaggers. That was a hell of a card for a Monday night. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, that's, that's a load. Wow, loaded that was a big card. That is a loaded card, no doubt. And you, well, hey, look, look the Omni the night before. You had Dundee and Dutch as your opener. <laughs> then you had Bob Armstrong against Jimmy Garvin, Arn against Brad, Tully against Wahoo. Robert uh, Robert Gibson and Ronnie Garvin subbing Ricky Morton against the Midnight's an elimination match. Dustin Nikita versus Ivan and Vladimir. Road Wars against Rude and Manny. And then, you know, Wyndham and Flair. They had a stat roster. Wow. Stat roster. Yeah, boy. Boy, you know Ivan had his working boots on those <laughs> nights. Huh? He had to carry them entire tag matches. Vladimir run in and throw some forearms across the back and tag out. Yeah. Now, we've talked about uh, Wyndham feeding with Flair. Wyndham's also one half the United States tag champions of Ronnie Garvin. And they start up a feud with the Midnight Express. And, and uh, in early February, yeah. we get the return of Miss Atlanta Lively. As uh, Miss Atlanta Lively <laughs> would attack Jim Cornette. And uh, <laughs> which would lead to Valentine's Day in Charlotte. 
where the, yes i took my girlfriend to this awesome. show what a romantic i was awesome yeah and on that show was they had you know the regular show plus a tv taping so they taped pro and worldwide there and the main event of the pro show was garvin and Wyndham wrestling against the midnights and Whew. jim Cornette threw one of the mother of all fireballs at ronnie garvin yes. And we get the scene where the baby faces come running out and try to save Ronnie, but also gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Precious. And Jimmy grabs Ronnie, puts his face in a towel, and runs him backstage with the cameras following him all the way out of the building. And uh, he, him putting Ronnie in the car with Precious, sending him off. Then Jimmy going into the heel locker room where he dressed and attacked Cornette until all the heels got him out of there. This is awesome television. And you were there live. So you have a live perspective of this. How crazy was that scene? Well, I mean, the fireball was spectacular. It was amazing. All that was great. It was a great live moment. But when I got home and got to watch the TV and see him burst into the dressing rooms and all that, it felt so real. And it was just so great because, I mean, Everybody was back there, and, and people were reacting like you would if it were really happening. I thought that was one of one of the more exciting things they really ever did as far as just having him bust into the locker room. I, I mean, they had done some stuff at the locker room, but it was usually like they jumped Ricky Morton and nobody else is around, and it looks like, hey, we're just shooting this in a part of the locker room. This was everybody was back there for the TV taping and everything. So, I mean, the locker rooms are full as he's busting back into this stuff, and it really just felt real, and you thought oh i guess jimmy garvin has just turned babyface and which you yeah. know i didn't see coming well, <laughs> so that was really exciting as well yeah, and, and, and it was <laughs> something where you know jimmy had been a really good heel in that year you know, he'd been with crockett he'd been with crockett for about a yeah. year now and he had done a really good job as a heel he kind of lost his way when the madden thing happened because him and madden were about to start start up a feud they were getting their feud going well, they were, yeah, they're, they're, Magnum's last match was the Lumberjack match with Jimmy Garvin yeah. and Greenville and stuff. So, I mean, they were really just getting their thing cooking. So, Jimmy goes from, you know, being in this feud with Magnum TA to being a feud with Brad Armstrong. And, you know, it's it's not the same. And, he's, and, and, Bill, Dundee, and Bill Dundee's inserted him with it. With Dundee, you know, and, and I love Bill Dundee, but Dundee, you know, tries to take over, you know, the promos and everything. So he's taken away from Jimmy Garvin. And one thing that they, they didn't do for that full year was they never acknowledged or had Jimmy and Ronnie ever cross paths. Never. Right. And then this happens, and you know the deal there. You got the you know, same last name, and they're storyline brothers, but – I mean, it's this is again, it's it's brilliance by Dusty of how all this played out. Yes, brilliance. Yeah, that one. Uh, that one worked. That was one of those where you just went. But when I got to see it on TV and see him burst into the locker room and stuff, I just thought, man, this has reached next level stuff. And I mean, the midnight somebody fresh, but you know, Ronnie and Jimmy were going to divide. So I was I was so excited about that because. Much as I love watching the Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, I had uh, seen it a whole lot by this point. And, that, and now you have you have an angle filled with heat. 
you know, no pun intended with the fire. Yes. But you got an angle filled with heat, and that way, you know, you had this extra spark to it instead of just being guys against guys. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk about more about this stuff as we go along, but uh, yeah, a tremendous angle here. Now, I did miss this. I'm just going to come back to it. The week before, they did the big turn. Du- Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff and Dick Murdoch as a six-man tag team against Ivan Vladimir and uh, it's a mass jobber as a Russian assassin or something like that. And th- you you could tell that they just grabbed this, you know, some scrawny dude and put him on their mask so he could get his ass kicked. And then the turn happens after the match where Dick Murdoch turns heel on Dusty Nikita and explains that Dusty, he cannot believe that Dusty had uh, taken this Russian under his wing and he, he, he was like basically turning his back on his country while Dick Murdoch is aligning with Ivan Koloff. Um, what'd you think about that angle and how great was it seeing Dick Murdoch as a heel again? Cause he probably was at his best. To heal. Oh, absolutely. I don't think uh, 1987 babyface Dick Murdoch was quite going to get over in the Crockett territory. The, the, the women were not going to be screaming for Captain Redback. <laughs> Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> now, me personally, I love Captain Redneck, but, uh, you know, my gosh, that's the thing people don't really think about looking back on that. And that's, uh, there was a lot of women in these crowds in 86 and 87. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of women. I mean, you can hear them. They're squealing through most of these matches. So, uh, they weren't exactly, you know, wetting their panties for Captain Redneck <laughs> Dick Murdoch. Well, maybe some of the fat women. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it's possible. No accounting for taste. I mean, <laughs> fat women need love to. <laughs> but, uh, I mean. You know, I, uh, I got to drive Captain Redneck Dick Murdoch around in Smoky Mountain Wrestling for a uh, the Christmas chaos tour as oh. me and Jim Mitchell were up there and um, Cornette's like, can you guys just, just get Murdoch to and from the shows? So we had four days in the car and the hotel with Dick Murdoch for him to tell all his stories and everything. And, and it was really amazing. He, uh, he ribbed Jimmy one night. He came out of the store and said, they won't sell me a goddamn bear. Cause I don't have an ID. Can you go in and get it for me? So Jimmy goes in and buys him like two 12 packs of, of Coors Light. But this took about two minutes before we got to that point because he goes, I want some curves. Jimmy's like, what? Curves, what? Curves, what? This went on for like two minutes. Where I was like, he wants some fucking Coors. So he, he goes in and gets the two 12 packs and he gets back in the car. And Dick Murray goes, thanks for buying my beer, you dumb son of a bitch. You really think they carded me? <laughs> didn't give him the money for the beer. He just made him buy his beer. So it was really great. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> and I had to take him to the airport that, uh, I guess it was Monday morning. And I mean, it's like snowing like crazy in Knoxville. We're crammed into a little Dodge Colt with Captain Redneck crammed in there. And I'm just cussing him the whole way. God damn it, Dick Murdoch. Why couldn't you have had a flight? 
later because it's like 6 a.m. and it's snowing and shit. But it was a great experience. And uh, we got to hear a lot of great stories from Dick Murdoch that weekend. And God bless him. Rest his soul. He was one of the greats. Absolutely. Do you think that they did this because Petrov was flopping? They did this turn? Probably. And do you think Probably and so. do you think that they kind of didn't go the full way they could have because Dusty and Dick never really had a definitive singles match in in, in this whole deal? Yeah, that was disappointing. I was really hoping we were going to get that. I think they wanted maybe Murdoch to to just help out with Ivan and Petrov because I mean Ivan could only do so much, and I mean I think they quickly realized that uh man, there's only so much we can get out of Vladimir. I mean, he really could not do much at all. I mean, he looked great, but boy, once that bell rang, it was like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. What do we do now? Yeah. Well, something happened in at the end of the month that wasn't involved in the wrestling ring, but something that really changed a performer's um, shtick. They changed the theme music for Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant. Of course, Jimmy Valiant mm. came out forever from you know the boy from New York City, and then they changed it to the in-house theme music Boogie Woogie. Um, that I, I think that did as much as killing Jimmy Valiant as a top you know I wouldn't say a top guy, but as a as a guy than any other thing that they did with him. Do you agree? I do. I, I think it hurt a lot. And I mean, I think you can call Valiant a top guy because he could main event the B shows yeah. or the C shows. Now, he wasn't really an A show main event guy unless he was, you know, part of a tag with Dusty or something like that. But I mean, he was as over as anybody on the roster at that time. And I think when they changed his music, I mean, like his pop just fell off a cliff. I mean, because they didn't know what it was. It wasn't the same. I mean, it'd be like the Road Warriors suddenly not coming out the Iron Man. I mean, you're still excited to see the Road Warriors, but you're like, where's, you know, Iron Man? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I mean, I mean, some guys are just synonymous with, with their music. And I mean, you know, the way Jimmy danced to the ring, to that song, clapping and everything. I mean, it was, it was part of his shtick. And I mean, to lose it, I think, you know... He took a hit when he lost it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It it definitely changed his, you know, like I said, his aesthetics. You know, because yeah. Boogie Woogie, I mean, it's it wasn't bad, but it wasn't born from New York City, which was just, you know, the doom, 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 doom. I mean, it's easy to get into. Yeah, I mean. The fans were, you know, popping for it like crazy. And he was a guy that had been there for so long. You know, it's just something that you're used to. Well, I mean, if I ever hear that song, I certainly immediately think of Jimmy <laughs> exactly. Valiant, as I imagine most people do. Exactly. Now, also at the end of the month at a, at a house show in Pittsburgh, they did the Bunkhouse Stampede Finals, where Dusty Rhodes beat Big Bubba Rogers in the cage to win the hundred thousand dollars in in the big in the big boot. And uh, mm. this is, you know, one, the one, of the one, one of the one of the woods. This is one of those things where. They're starting to try to do more things in the Northeast. Um, do you think that the Buckhouse Stampede Finals should have been something that should have been held in a southern city? Or do you think that they were trying to do the right thing by trying to 
you know, have something like this happen in a, in a town like Pittsburgh? Well, I mean, I don't think it's like when they took Starcade away. I don't think anybody was fuming that they didn't get the Bunkhouse Stampede Finals. I mean, so I think for something like, and I mean, I was, you know, initially excited about the Bunkhouse Stampede as a concept, the way they sold it. It sounded fun, but, you know, once you saw one, it was just another battle royal with some plunder in the ring. There, there wasn't a whole lot to it. So, um, I mean, Pittsburgh is a place they were looking to get into, and uh, I can see the reasoning doing it there and uh, and hoping that, you know, this is something special, this will, will give it a boost or whatever. But uh, as you know, we get further through this year, boy, they uh, they screwed it up pretty bad. They sold out, but they but sold at this out the point, house, so, yeah. That's, that's good. I mean, I think, you know... Um, there was a big demand for Crockett promotions. I mean, everybody, I mean, everybody who had cable had TBS. So if you watch wrestling at this point, you, you definitely wanted to see those guys. And, and I could see why they were wanting to get out and do more. And, um, but boy, it ended up, uh, hurting pretty bad as we get later in the year. Yeah. Well, but right here, I think it, it was still a positive. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right, also, the, the last World Championship Wrestling in February, Ole Anderson and Tully Blanchard have their showdown. As uh, after an Ole Ar- Arn match, Tully and, and, you know, they the whole month basically they've been cutting this, these promos, you know, saying there's no dissension in the horsemen. And there was this one promo by J.J. Dillon. I don't know if it was the week before this. But, it, you know, basically going to this whole thing about Ole Anderson's career. I mean, talk about how great Ole was and how important he was. And then they're trying to build Ole up. And then Tully comes out here and said that Ole should be paying attention to business instead of a snot-nosed kid. Instead of that snot-nosed kid. Yeah, which prompted Ole to punch him. Yeah, prompted Ole to punch him. So now we have the horseman in disarray. And of course, that was the Ole was would take time off to go watch his son Bryant, future Smoky Mountain uh, star Brian Anderson, <laughs> and uh, watch him compete in high school, and uh, do tournaments and stuff. And that's what Tully was kind of talking about that Ole had kind of lost his way because he was too busy watching his kid instead of doing horseman business. And that's a, again a great way to explain why you're doing what you're doing with Ole and Luger. You mix the reality in with the storyline. Well, nothing works better than reality. And I mean, Ole was gone for his kid, and Tully called him out for it, and people bought it. And, you know, um, as we get further into this, I was always disappointed that um, that did not go further than it did. I mean, my recollection, and I'm sure you will have more details on this, is I mean, Ole turns. And then uh, he makes that save with the baseball bat and does the dance of the rock because <laughs> nobody's going to forget the dance of the rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they had like an Omni main event. And then I think Tim Horner came out to be his partner. And then Ole was gone from TV, like almost instantly. And um, I never got to see Ole against the horseman live during this period. Really? Okay. So I was always disappointed. I did not get to see that happen i'll have to look through here and see if 
And they never had that in Greenville or Columbia or anything because how long did it last before Ole was gone? I mean, it did not seem it like – It went into May. We'll get it. We, we'll, into May. we'll get into it as we go along. But, yeah, I know uh, okay. it was in, into May. I could be wrong. Now, we're starting March okay. up, and this is an interesting time at Crocker Promotions. Uh, the experiment with Central States had failed. They couldn't bring business back to Kansas City. They tried. It didn't work. So they pulled everybody out of Kansas City. Now they hitched their wagon to another championship wrestler from Florida. So they bought it out. And now they're aligned with that, which they started bringing some talent in from there. So Bill Dundee is working as the you know the liaison, I guess, in a way, because he's booking Florida. And uh, the mod squad's coming in, the barbarians back around, and Mike Rotunda makes his return to Krugger Promotions. Now, um, you watch Mike Rotunda 87. He, <laughs> what, what, how, what can I say about 87 Mike Rotunda? He's about as bland as bland can get. Would you agree with me on that one? I would agree that he was incredibly boring, incredibly bland. This is a guy that they put a captain's hat on his head to give him personality at some point. 1990, yeah. (laughs) That's how far gone he was. They were like, man, what can we do with Mike Rotunda? Well, let's call him captain and give him a captain's hat. (laughs) Oh, that sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, and team it up with Norman (laughs) and Abdullah the Butcher. (laughs) <laughs> oh, good God! So yeah, you, you Whew, guys I think I mean, about that. And they actually tease on commentary at one point in time that Stan Lane was coming in to be a partner of Jimmy Garvin while Ronnie was out. More about Stan Lane in a little bit, but uh, <laughs> also in early March, Arn makes his decision and decides he's going to stick with the Horseman, not Ole. So Ole hitched his wagon to him in '85. And Starcade 86 was Arn's chance to, quote, unquote, reach immortality. And it didn't happen because the fire had gone out in Ole. <laughs> Just great, oh, that's good great stuff. stuff. And if you remember in the promos after, Arn was kind of like talking about he wants singles titles, not tag titles. Yep. So you could see the wheels were in motion of uh, Arn becoming a singles competitor here at this point in time. And, of course, he would, you know, team up with Tully later on. But you see it happening. So we got that. And just, you know, again, great storytelling. Ronnie Garvin's wrestling on television with a big bandage on his face, which I always thought was cool when guys would do that. And uh, oh yeah, we get the debut of Lasertron. <laughs> now, did you think that this was too cartoony of a gimmick for Crockett or what did you, th- you think about the laser Tron gimmick? I thought it was pretty silly. I mean, almost embarrassingly so, but it was slotted low enough on the card that it didn't rub me the wrong way or anything. I mean, it wasn't – I'll tell you what I thought was worse was that day I was sitting there watching TBS studio wrestling and Bugsy McGraw showed up and they acted like he was going to be a star and I just thought you've got to be kidding me I don't know what month that was in but I just remember just going this is no way 
that this is going to work. And then he was gone, like within a week, it seemed like. I mean, they were just like, okay, we, we, we screwed up and we know it. Because I just thought, they've got to be kidding me. They give me Lasertron over Bugsy McGraw any day. Well, did you know that Hector was Lasertron? I did not. Okay, see, here, here. not not immediately. I found out fairly quickly, but I did not know. Well, here's here's the thing that that I knew as a seven year old at the time, because Hector Hector Guerrero was wearing when Lasertron debuted. Lasertron was still wearing tights, not pants, and it was the same silver tights that fucking Hector was wearing <laughs> just weeks before. <laughs> But, but you know what they did? They did a smart thing, though. Um, they debuted him on TBS, and he won the fucking world junior title from Denny Brown on his debut on TBS. Which you know, Denny Brown, even though he was Denny Brown, they still kind of like protected that title in a way because you never really saw it defended a whole lot on television. You know, Denny Brown would be in job matches, you know, and stuff like that, but. I saw it as the opener of almost every house show I ever went to. I can tell you that. Denny Brown versus Nelson Royal, 20-minute Broadway, (laughs) kicked off more shows than I can count it. And I got to tell you, I I hated Denny Brown. And as a asshole fan, I heckled Denny Brown to death. I mean, I would just ride him the entire match. At a show in Greenville, I swear, this is they, I think they did a title change just to shut me up because I think Nelson had the title. And I was just, poor Denny Brown, you're never going to win. It's going 20, Denny. You're never going to get the Burger King. And I just was just on him the whole match. How he was not going to win. And at like 1956, they did a pinfall so Denny Brown could roll out the ring and stick that title in my face and cuss me. <laughs> And I just nodded like, all right, Denny, you showed me. (laughs) And then I saw that match later that week, and Nelson Royal had the belt back. So I think they just did it so Denny Brown could roll out the ring and stick it up my ass. Because, I mean, I just, every Monday night, I just, as soon as he came out, I said, oh, Denny, you got no chance, Denny. Just go home now, Denny. I mean, I just, I just rode him unmercifully. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well. What an asshole. <laughs> and that's why we love you. I tell you, there's a match that takes place during, during this first week of March that really interests me and I wish there was video of it in Memphis uh, they did on March the 5th mm-hmm. the King of Tennessee match Bill Dundee versus Dusty Rose at the Miss South Coliseum where Bill Dundee won holy cow they, they were doing this deal on local Memphis television of course where Bill Dundee was proclaiming himself the true King of Memphis and uh, they were, you know, running down Lawler, kind of, sort of. And Dusty was saying he was, a, he was a real king of wrestling. And they did the deal, set it up there, and Dundee went over. I can't imagine a world that Dusty Rhodes put Bill Dundee over in, in 1987. In that's That's mind-blowing. Yes. I mean, I, it, I don't know how clean of a job it was. But he did it. 
Wow. He did it. He, wow, wow, he wow. He did it. And I, that's a match I've always wanted to see. And this, uh, yeah, I would like I to died, see that. Died, it's in the WWE library, so I tell you, sad. <laughs> now, we mentioned Lasertron earlier. Uh, they're doing a deal where they're, they're announcing teams for Crockett Cup in March. And Jimmy Valiant said he wants Lasertron to be his partner. And then he said they would donate their winnings to the underprivileged. <laughs> in your career, have you ever thought about donating any of your money to the underprivileged? I was the underprivileged. <laughs> I've always viewed myself as the underprivileged <laughs> and the charity that needed to be fed first. So, no, I, I did not. Amazing. I mean, if we even would have done an angle like, we're going to throw out the, the $101 bills to the crowd, I would have been like, let's throw about three of them out there and then we'll split the rest. The hell with those people. Now, they've done the only thing. And they did a, a weird angle to me on uh, Worldwide on March 14th where Jim Cornette came out with the JJ and uh, told him that he was going to help him with his problem. And Ole Anderson had went to the ring and Big Bubba comes out and Big Bubba goes in and starts brawling with Ole. And then Ole knocks Big Bubba to the floor as the show goes off the air. That... That again, that was a weird one because I mean they had solely set up Ole and the Horsemen to be in the main story, and now they've thrown Bubba in here. Why do you think Dusty did that? I don't know why they didn't want to do more stuff with Ole because again, like I said, I don't feel like they really did a whole lot. Maybe they didn't feel like they had somebody to put with Ole to to put him on that level of Tully and Arn or Rick and Tully and Arn or whatever, and um. They they wanted to do something with Ole, and uh, obviously I think they had big plans for Bubba because it was pretty clear that he was he was blossoming into something pretty special. I mean, for a guy that size who could move the way he did, and I think they probably just thought that would be a great learning experience for Bubba to work with Ole. Yeah, and, and you know they they worked. You know, we'll talk about that Crockett match. Uh, they worked in Greensboro that night. The, the day the show aired, you know, in a ma- in a match. I mean, maybe it was the idea. So you could you could be onto something there. Definitely could be on. I would think so because I think they definitely saw that they had something with Bubba. And um, man, you can't learn from somebody much better than Oli. I mean, that's a he's a ring veteran. That's pretty good. He's a ring veteran. That's <laughs> for sure. He's been around a little while. He's he's seen a little something. Yeah. Yeah, two two guys who really haven't talked about at this point in the show because they've pretty much been working against you know a, a, a certain set of opponents. The World Tag Champions, Raging and Ravishing, Rick Rude and yeah. Fernandez, and I want to talk about it because everybody talks about the Road Warriors squash matches on television. I think at this time, Raging and Ravishing squash matches were as strong as any squash matches you can get because they just beat the shit out of dudes and did it quick. And that's a, that's right. an art in wrestling to look impressive like that. That's how you get over. And those guys went out there and did it. What were, what were your thoughts on them and you know in their TV matches? God, I mean, I loved them as a tag team. I mean, they had the "We Will Rock You" entrance music and stuff. And I mean, I thought those um, the world tag titles that they carried were the best looking world tag titles that Crockett ever had. And they kept I mean, them. Those belts looked amazing. You, you, you know, I mean, they they were. Beautiful. You know the story behind that? 
you know, th those were. I don't. Uh, th was it was the 50th anniversary titles, or something like that. 40th anniversary, 50th anniversary, whatever. So they had him made to give him the Manny and Rick, and when Rick quits, he he goes with one of the belts. Manny keeps the other. He stays, and then when he quits, he keeps his belt. They never gave him back. <laughs> Now, they were some nice looking titles. And, yeah, they were. They were. They weren't around long. No, uh, they were beautiful. That, that, belts. That's a shame. Yeah, but yeah, that, they kept the bells. Those guys did um, quite a few shows in Greenville during that period of time, and um, I actually saw them do a cage match with the Rock and Roll, and Rick Rude bled in the match. And that's rare. I know you know that. Uh, Rick Rude bleeding was a rare bird. And I got a great picture I took where they're running right into the cage and you can see the blood all over his forehead. That's like, oh my God, Rick Rude's bleeding. Like like I don't think I'd ever seen him bleed in Dallas. I can't recall. I mean he probably did, but not you yeah, know, no, I mean no. that was not something he was known for. No. no, he was not he was not a guy that juiced, that's for sure. Yeah, he he definitely was all about, you know, his face. <laughs> Which hey, if you if you can get away with it, if you got enough heat doing something else, you can get away with it. More power to you, I say. You know, so as whatever. Well, you I mean, do. rude. You know, during this period and a little later, I mean, he was one of the the great heels in wrestling there for a while. I mean, he really was was something special. Absolutely. And um, and you mentioned Greenville. And I'm just looking at the result here. Were you at the March 15th show? Let's see, let me look at my things here. Was that um was that Dusty and Dick Murdoch? No, that's Flair and Wyndham ninety minute time limit. Two out of three falls. Ooh, it seems like I would remember that. I don't see the clip here. Let me see what else was. So I was gonna ask you how many ninety card. minute matches that, how many time limit matches that had you seen really in that era? Um, I s well not in that era. I saw Blackjack Mulligan and the Bass Superstar. Oh yeah. For for ninety minutes when I was a much younger man. No, I uh, I was not at that unfortunately. Which uh, wow, Makita and Luger, Ricky Morton, Rick Rude, or maybe that was maybe that's the one where Rick Rude bled. I can't remember. Maybe the Rick Rude bleeding actually superseded <laughs> Rick Flair and Barry Windham. That seems hard to. <laughs> Them with my love of Ric Flair, but I was pretty well taken with seeing Rick Rude bleed. Like, oh my God, it's like a holy grail. Yeah, Rick Rude is bleeding. You know, I mean, Luger. You know, he 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 didn't bleed much either. And usually, when he tried, it wasn't about shit, anyways. But but Rude had him a nice big forehead full of blood. So it was a uh, it was impressive. Absolutely. Now, in the March twenty first episode of Worldwide, we get an interesting occurrence. During the whole Ole thing, where all this the the breakup of the of the horseman with him and all that stuff was going on, Ric Flair wasn't around. He was on tour in all Japan, so Flair's back in the country. He's at you know he's at this TV taping in China Grove, North Carolina. Whoa, China Grove! And uh, <laughs> Ole goes into the the locker room and confronts Flair and asks Flair, "Where do you stand on this?" Because Flair didn't have an opinion at the time. And Flair said, Oli turned his back on them. And then they beat the shit out of Oli in the locker room. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they did. Crockett loved those locker room that's angles. That's a great clip. Yeah, they, they loved doing that locker room angle, didn't they? And I think that's something that's, that's 
a lost art in wrestling too is going into the locker room like that. Although we see the thing on wrestling nowadays, you see guys in the back, you know, everything's in the back, but you don't go to the locker room where everybody's like dressing like they used to do back in the eighties, you know, the, the, right. the, the face locker room and the heel locker room. You don't have that no more. It's lost. No. And I mean, it was, it was a thrill then because you didn't have that stuff and you felt like you were seeing something like, Oh, this is real. You know, he's, he's confronted him in the back and now they're going to kick the, hell out of him you know in the shower in the locker room and you know leave only laying there on the floor beat half to death and stuff and it was very exciting you know i mean i just thought you know when you when you got backstage like that it's you know when you when you make stuff based on something real you know like memphis pretty much tried to do everything it always gives it that much more flavor so you had the people who were like oh he was was just trying to help his kid and, and these bastards you know what died before it then you got the other side which is oh he wasn't paying attention to horseman business because of that spot those kid and you know people would really argue about things like that in the crowd i mean those kind of things made it in to the crowd and people, you know, treated it like it was real. And, you know, regardless of what they knew or didn't know, you know, there was this level of, hey, we're all in on this. And by God, if if Oli did it for the love of his child, then I'm going to support Oli. <laughs> yeah. Even though he's been an asshole for decades. Yeah. Well, the animal... But suddenly... We love Yeah, it. well, I mean, well, that wasn't the first time. He did the same thing, you know, when he turned face years ago <laughs> in Georgia. He became over, and we saw that in it. Yes. But, yeah, this is different, different, oh, yeah. different, what a yeah, different story here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Moral of the story, don't trust all the answers, for God's sake. <laughs> no. Uh, the end of the month, the last worldwide of the month, taped in Lincolnton, North Carolina. Um, Dick Murdoch gave Nikita Koloff a brain buster on the floor. Now, if yes. this was if this was 2018, he would have picked him up and shook his hand. After that, they would have danced to the back. But uh, right. this is 1987. You just wanted to say that before I did. <laughs> I mean, you love it. Right, this, so this is 1987, and this is treated as a major incident. And Nikita's going to be Ooh, yeah. wearing a neck brace. You know, for a while. Right. This. It looked great, too. I mean, it looked great. Yeah, so that you have that angle going on, and then you have another angle going on where uh, Ole and Flair get into it, and Ole rips up Flair's clothes. And, um, yeah, Ole, the horseman kept trying to get a hold of Ole. He kept getting out of the ring, and... Uh, Flair and love getting his clothes ripped off, didn't he? He did that so many times. I mean, that's what. Now, where because I saw that in Greenville, where Oli rips up Ric Flair's clothes, and Ric Flair does that where he runs in the circle through a door, out through the door, and back okay, and runs in the circle, no, like, and then he just. Me. You're right. It's Greenville. You're right. You're right. So I was at that, and it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite Flair. Blow it from all time because it's Ole, Ole, where are you now? Where are you now? Do you know what you just did? And he's got his big gold medallion yes. and his shirt's all ripped. And I mean, his face is all red. And he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, going crazy. And uh, that's one of my favorite Flair promos. I mean, because he just goes berserk. And, and whenever somebody beat me down or whatever like that, I always 
tried to do that Ric Flair, which was, where are you? Where are you now? You know what you just did? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was very influential for me. I just, I love that Ric Flair. <laughs> I mean, just, just out of control, Ric Flair was always lots of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It was in Greenville. And uh, again, Oli was using his smarts to get over the horseman, you know, who, who he, and, and, and it makes sense from the store perspective because like JJ Dillon said before the whole thing happened, when he was putting Ole over in the promo, he's like, Ole was a guy that taught everybody how to do what they did. So you're, you're, you're <laughs> facing the master here, you know, uh, uh, the, the heel master. He knows all the dirty tricks. Yeah. And all the, you know, he's in the mind games. So, so yeah, th- there was so much more they could have done here, and he didn't do. It is really weird, right? I always felt like that there was definitely more with Oli they left on the table. Absolutely, absolutely. Road Warriors returned here after a tour of all Japan, and they brought back their NWA International Tag Titles here. And this is the first time that that's really mm-hmm. acknowledged on Crockett programming. Um, you already got the World Tag Titles. You got the United States Tag Titles. I mean, yes, these aren't Crockett belts, but do you think this was done so the Road Warriors could have some belts? Because, you know, they had never had belts in Crockett, and they've been there for, you know, well well over a year and a half by this point. And it's like, yeah, we, we got to let them have some, some gold here. Probably, but the thing about the Road Warriors is they, they were in and out, so there was never like they were just there forever not getting the titles and stuff. So, I mean, I, I didn't think it was a negative that they didn't have them because they would just – they would come in for these short bursts and then I guess go back to Japan and then come back. And uh, you really thought, man, if they put the titles on the Road Warriors, <laughs> who in the hell is going to get them off of them, you know? and yeah, they would have to agree to to do so. And I mean, I was starting to learn a little more about wrestling at this point. And you know, I was hearing things like, "Oh, the Road Warriors don't like to, you know, sell." <laughs> I was like, "What's that?" <laughs> They're like, you know, they don't like to get beat on. I was like, "Yeah, they they definitely don't like that much." Oh no, <laughs> they definitely don't do it much. <laughs> no, and and they were having matches with Raging and Ravishing this time too, and. uh yeah, the matches I saw of them were pretty good. Uh, of course, Rude, Rude yeah. and those guys yeah. go way back, so you know there's right. something there with that, and uh, yeah, just interesting stuff. Now, at the end of the month, also in the May twenty May March twenty eighth episode of World Championship Wrestling, for the past couple of weeks on television, they were really pimping up this tag team called the Gladiators from the West Coast. <laughs> they were coming into the Crockett Cup. <laughs> So the Gladiators are going to make their TV debut on this World Championship Wrestling. And you see these guys, and they're in all blue bodysuits with blue masks. And, again, I'm seven years old, and I'm looking at this, and I said, these guys are not who they say they were. This is, I've, I've been, bill, I've been uh, sold a bill of false goods here. And so they're wrestling Bill and Randy Mulkey, the perennial whipping boys of JCP. And... You see what's going on here, and they, they start the match off pretty strong. And then uh, one of the monkeys is picked up for a slam, and they fall back on him and get the one, two, three pin. TBS goes crazy. David Crockett goes crazy. Uh, it was one, one of those moments that, you know, if you watch 
World Championship Wrestling. It's one of those moments I think that ranks up there as one of the ones you always remember. And yeah. the Mulkies got to cut a promo after the match and everything. And how was it seeing those these guys who had just getting their asses whipped every week get this big surprising win over this quote unquote top tag team here? It was nice to throw those guys a bone because, I mean, as far as jobbers went, I mean, the monkeys took some hellacious beating. Oh, yes. And, and, and looked great doing it. So I thought it was it was a nice gesture to, to give them something. And, um, you know, the people kind of got with it, and, and it was really fun. And I think they ended up drawing like a, a big sell hometown with the big tight express. Anderson, South stuff, Carolina, so, in their hometown, I mean, yeah. It really it, it worked out nice. I mean, that was a nice thing to do. I mean, in the big picture of things, it didn't matter because the monkeys weren't going to beat anybody else. But yeah, it was pretty funny. And you know, setting up the the Crockett Cup, going into that, giving them a little steam, and yeah, I thought it was nice. It was funny. I certainly still remember it, just like you, just like anybody else who saw it. Yeah, I mean, David Crockett, like, going, you did it. The monkeys won. You did it. You know, it's great, great stuff. <laughs> yeah, nobody got more excited than David Crockett. <laughs> no, you got that right. Now, uh, you know, at the time, I thought he was so terrible, but, you know, as time has gone by, he's not, uh, he's actually not nearly as bad as things became. And it's honestly quite charming how excited he gets and, you well, you know, watched I mean, Dave- it. Just comes off as real. Here's the thing: you saw David Crockett way back in the day. David Crockett back in the day was far from that. He was a soft-spoken type of guy, you know. It's yes. like he turned it on. Very much so. He turned it on when when Dusty became the Booker and going to you know '85 is when it really started. Right. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Also, as we close March out, we having some changes in the lineups of house shows. Because Dennis Condry leaves the promotion. And this was a big deal because, I mean, Midnight Express had been there. You know, they were established, World Tag Team Champions, one of the greatest tag teams in the world. And now Bobby's left without a tag partner. And he's having the team with Big Bubba Rogers on, on shows, or he's having to work singles matches. Um, did you attend any of those shows where Dennis was announced and wasn't there? I don't recall anything like that happening. Um, looking through here, and uh, because on television they never they never really talk about it. Uh, Eaton Eaton and Bubba work as a team, and Eaton works singles matches. And all Jim Crockett says, Jim Crockett, Jim Cornette says, is that the uh, Midnight Express will be, be bigger and battered than ever at the Crockett Cup. So they never talk about Den- why Dennis isn't there. No, because, I mean, that was only like a week where Dennis was gone, right? I mean, um, they had Stan up there almost immediately, it seems like. Stan shows up. Let's see. Dennis leads in the March. Stan shows up in... Gosh, about the first week of April, maybe? Um, Yes. Yes, first week of April. Yeah, I mean, so it wasn't that long. So I, I did not... And Bubba ever team or Bobby in a singles match during that time period because I think they were, you know, because God, that's around the time when they were going out to do Boston and uh, yeah. some of the other stuff like that. Because didn't Stan debut in Boston? Is that not right? Uh, his first match with Bobby was in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
they they lost to the Road Warriors. <laughs> wow, that's a hell of a debut. Yeah, what else the Road Warriors? Um, how did you feel about Stan replacing Dennis as it one half the Midnight Express? Because I mean, Stan had been a member of the Fabulous Ones for years, and they were a great tag team, but he was a babyface. He worked heel in in for, you know Mid South for a little bit, but they were babyfaces for so long. So I mean, what 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 was your stance on that? I mean, I loved the Midnight Express. They were my favorite tag team at the time, and I loved Dennis. But uh, I mean, when Stan showed up, it, it was it was magic immediately. You knew it was going to be great. I mean, Stan was certainly a well-established tag team guy. He looked great. They still had Jim Cornette to sell everything. So I mean, when he showed up on TV that first week and Cornette's doing the promo, I was like, "Huh, Dennis is gone, and Stan's in," and it was almost like. They never skipped a beat. They were just right back to being the Midnight Express and, and having great tag team matches. And, uh, you know, people often say, oh, which which do you like better? And uh, it's really hard to say. I mean, I usually go with Dennis because that's the stuff from Mid-South as well as the Crockett stuff, you know. So so Dennis has some of my favorite era stuff but i mean i couldn't possibly come up with a bad word to say about bobby and stan as a tag team i thought they were fantastic as well so it's really hard to say uh-huh. i mean like i said dennis did my favorite stuff because of the mid-south stuff and of course the scaffold match which i you know i've just always treasured as holy shit look how far those guys fell but uh man i loved stan and bobby as a team uh- I, I say I talk about it like this. I mean, Bobby and Dennis were the classic Southern style style heel tag team type stuff. I mean, yes. most most of your heat stuff and you know brawling and that that's with Bobby and Dennis. Bobby and Stan is your work rate version. You know, it, I mean, they, right. they're there to have the great matches. That's why you know Bobby and Dennis, their they, their matches against like the men, I mean the the Rock and Roll Express were as great as they were because of that. And the Midnight when and Bobby and Stan, their matches the Fantastics work so well because of of, of their style like yes. that. So, yeah, they're both they're both great in their own way. But I mean, you put a gun to my head and made me choose. I would choose Bobby and Dennis. Yeah, I mean, they were just a little grittier, and Dennis worked with a bandana around his <laughs> neck, and not much was cooler than Man, that. Kick your ass. Yeah, and uh, you know, it wasn't afraid to get that big color. Yeah, Stan Lane looked like he wanted to wine and dine you, while Dennis Conner looked like he wanted to just beat the shit out of you. <laughs> right. I, and mean, there's I think that's a that. fair assessment. <laughs> no, they were both great. Both served their purpose, and, and I'm a huge fan of both. I would just give the slight nod to Bobby yeah. and Dennis because they were a little grittier and brawlier and bloodier, you know, more fighters. Yeah. All right, April 4th, Fort Championship Wrestling. Dick Murdoch suspended for 30 days because uh, he's got to go to Japan. So they're stripping him and Ivan of the U.S. tag titles that they have won from uh, Garvin and Wyndham. So those titles are vacant mm-hmm. again. Um, Ric Flair basically starts up a new feud here. as uh, He's kind of been calling out Precious for a couple of weeks, and she finally comes out and slaps him in the face. And uh, Flair says he's gonna bring out his Space Mountain nets the next week, and uh, he he asked he he asked if the next time Precious would slap him, would it be behind closed doors? <laughs> and I like Flair said, I like it. You know, he he like he like he liked when women got rough with him. 
I mean, this is this is. I I think the flare work and the press, the Jimmy Garvin angle with Precious is tremendous. Oh, it is. I mean, the mannequin in the lingerie. He's out there kissing all over and stuff. I mean, you could tell he was just having a ball and um, just just heating it up. And I mean, and what a what a great thing for Jimmy Garvin. I mean, it really you know gave him a boost. And you know, I just thought that that stuff was so fun. That the dream date with Precious and everything. I mean, all of that was just golden. The thing about the the one thing though, and I heard people say this before, and I kind of agree with it, is Precious didn't just didn't seem like the type that Flair would be into, you know. Well, I think the fact that she was Jimmy Garvin's woman made her that more desirable. Well, there you go. Rick was the kind of guy that took joy in taking a woman from someone else, proving his male superiority over Jimmy Garvin. <laughs> so I think that had as much to do with it as her looks, as it was a, a dominant thing, like I'm the big boss around here. Yeah, you're right. And, and and thinking about it like that, yeah, that definitely makes some sense. And we didn't have, you know, a whole lot of hot women in pro wrestling yet. I mean, they were uh, fairly few and far between. I mean, we had Missy Hyatt in UWF at this point, who was clearly, you know, the, the creme de la creme of women who had showed up in wrestling at that point, in my opinion. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this girl is so super scorching hot, yes. you know, I mean. Yes. Absolutely, and she Missy Hyatt and the Gucci purse was a was, was a wonderful addition to pro wrestling. Yeah, we'll be talking about her on probably our next edition of this of this series when the when the, the Crockett thing happened. Nice. I uh, also on that show, Ron, oh Ronnie Garvin talked about Dennis Condon quit and said he was the only one that had any sense. So, <laughs> and that's where they introduced Stan, and Stan says that he was on Clearwater Beach hanging with the ladies. When Cornette called him and of said that he could win a million dollars and beat up Ronnie Garvin, so he jumped at a chance to do it. Right. <laughs> so, that, yeah, there's your reason oh, why. God. And Ole and Tim Horner have hooked up here at this point in time, so they're cutting promos together. And Arn, since um, Ole's not ta- able to tag with him at the Crockett Cup, takes on Kevin Sullivan as his partner. Which, the, the Arn Anderson Kevin Sullivan thing. It it goes in different you know different promotions and in different eras. It's always interesting to me that Arn and Kevin Sullivan have this like thing where they're kind of intertwined in a way. Weird. Yes, I think they're really good <laughs> friends be. or something yeah. in real life or something. Must be because they seem to pile around a, a bit. Now we should be getting close to the debut of the new breed. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay. God, because of boy, I definitely want to talk about them. Yeah. That was a, they were exciting, but don't yes. <laughs> we'll get in to fact, that. We're about to get to it in a second. I, you mentioned the women. I wanted to ask, ask about this. Misty Blue and Linda Dallas were starting to work uh, some of the house shows here. What's your thing about having the women wrestle on the Crockett cards? This- uh, to me, at the time, the women were like the midgets. I, I didn't care. It was just a time to go to the bathroom, <laughs> honestly, get a beer, whatever. I mean, I, they never did much for me, which which is funny because um, nowadays I, I have a great appreciation for the ladies in the WWE and um, enjoy some of their stuff as much as the men. So we've uh, 
we've come a long ways. Absolutely. With the women's wrestling. Now, do you, uh, I mean, did you know at the time? Well, maybe not, but how did you feel about when the first time you heard that Misty Blue actually did porn with Ron Jeremy? Oh, I, I definitely didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and, um, I was an avid fan of pornography during that era as well. So it seems like something I would have known, but I don't believe I did know that. I never forget the first time I watched that. Uh, I was like, wow. This is- I mean, that's the Ginger Land, Tracy Lords, Christy Canyon era. Yeah. Form. That was a very quality era. And Ron, Jer- Ron Jeremy, you know, before he got fat, you know, and he's, you know, <laughs> the he's screwing, you know, Misty Blue in a hospital. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> something else to see. You're like, wow, okay. Oh, my. You know, I don't think I've ever seen that. So I guess <laughs> um, I've got something to search for later today. There you go. There's a movie called... Now, Misty Blue, did she not marry a wrestler? Was she married to a wrestler? Oh, she may have been. I don't know for okay. sure. Yeah, she may have been. Okay. All right. Now, the week, the first week of April, well, the second week of April on television... The New Breed made their debut, so you're, you're right there at it. In Spartanburg at the TV table yes. there, and um, they beat up Ricky Nelson and Vernon Deaton, and also the same show was Eaton and Lane making their uh, t- syndicated TV debut as a team. Uh, I seen wow. I seen New Breed in Florida on, on uh, Pedestino's block. I knew of their act, and they come in here, and they're – they're tremendous, and they give them the Beastie Boys theme song. Yeah. As soon as they gave them Five Free Right to Party, I said, "There's no way these guys can be heels. They're going to have to turn them face because the fans, <laughs> the fans, you know, went nuts when that song hit. There's no way they can do it. They tried, and 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 the New Breed did a good job as heels, but there's no way they could do it with that music. But uh, yeah, talk about New Breed. Right. Talk about Chris Champion and Sean Roy. I mean, I I love the new breed from the second I saw them. They had all that zigzag stuff cut in their hair and everything, and you know this crazy mullet, and just and they were doing all the flashy stuff and doing top rope stuff, and they were like something really fresh and new when they showed up. I mean, there was nobody else wrestling like they were and i mean it's so funny because you know you think back of just somebody jumping off the top rope or doing something like that or a springboard move or something was was such a big deal at the time because that kind of stuff didn't really happen and i just thought these guys are stars and i mean you knew they were going to start them slow because i think they started like laser tron and jimmy valiant and I mean, obviously, they were going to win. A big feud with the Midnight Express. They would do their babyface turn and all that. And, you know, then the car accident happened. And, you know, it's a really, really a shame of all the things I look back on, you know, what would have, could have, should have been. The new breed, I think, would have been, you know, world tag team champions and, and drawn big houses. I think they really had a bright future. And I, I don't know anybody who saw them who wasn't pretty much immediately taken with them. Like, Hey, did you see those guys? <laughs> you know, you see these new guys, <laughs> they got something, you know? And, um, first time I got to see them live, I was, I was really just like, man, this is, this is different from everything else on the show. And, uh, these guys are future stars. And, um, I saw Chris champion do like a tope. And I was like, Holy yeah, you know, we just 
go through the ropes on this guy. Like, like nobody did that. And Crockett in 87? Are you kidding me? He was me? jumping off the top rope to the floor so, like Savage was. I mean, he was doing all kinds of wild shit. Whew. Absolutely. Yeah, those those guys were, were great. And then, of course, you know, later in life in Wildside, Sean Royal came and worked with us there for a long time. So I got to sit with him a bunch and talk to him about it. And he was great and crazy as shit. And <laughs> he was half of Total Destruction. And then we did an angle with him. And I mean, he hit me in the back of the neck with a pool cue. And I mean, <laughs> felt like he was going to break my neck. And then he starts choking me with it. And I mean, he's literally crushing my larynx with this pool cue and stuff. And I'm like trying to pinch him on his leg and stuff like, God damn it, man, you're killing me. <laughs> But yeah, he's a great guy. I mean, despite him almost murdering me, I still have an extremely high opinion of him. He was a great guy. Yeah, Sean Royal. And of course, Chris went on and did, you know, Yoshi Kwan and all that stuff. And then he had what, like that Ninja Turtle? Yeah, he was Cowabunga. Mishap yeah, and yeah, and stuff yeah. He came out of his shell. All literally. that. <laughs> Yikes. But, uh, yeah, he had Wild Side with uh, the tag team with his brother Mark Starr in Memphis. That's right, with Mark Starr. Yeah, they had the, those leather trench coats looking badass. He had the Python Snake. I love that Chris Champion run. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, man, I was a big fan of both those guys. And, I, and, and he's had a lot of health issues. He's had, uh, he had a stroke, and I heard recently he had mm. another stroke, and he wasn't doing good, and he was in failing help, so hopefully he'll uh, he'll come out. Oh, I really oh love Chris Champion. I thought he was a great performer, and it was just so odd seeing. Sean yeah, he Roy came and worked in Wildside too. Yeah. Um, so I got the chance to to work with him as well. In fact, we had um a mini riot where he was the special referee in a match with the New South against Bad Attitude that turned out with the cops being called and everything. Oh, and wow. Racial slurs being yelled at the New South. And, yeah. You know, it was, a, it was a situation. It's one of Bill's favorite stories because, you know, it turned into, you know, a food-throwing thing, and, and he always likes to talk about, you know, how he was responsible for that. So. <laughs> Whenever, whenever, whenever we do that wild, that South yeah, whenever we do that wild side show, that'd be definitely something to talk about. <laughs> yeah, well, we've only been talking about it for two years well, now, so hey, maybe, hey. maybe we won't do that one you know day. What? Next year's the 20th anniversary of Wild Side, so we'll uh, we'll talk. We, we may do it next year. Uh, the, the commemorate. Okay. Uh, I may do a series on it. I told Dan today, I said, I'm going to hit Chris up again about that wild side thing. It's, I brought it up at SCI two years ago, so it's been two years. Maybe I could guilt him into <laughs> to doing it now because hey, it's been two years since we talked about there's it. There's a method to the madness. So, <laughs> but, uh, Anyway, um, back to 87. Yeah. Rocket Cup yeah. takes place in Baltimore, two-night deal. And... Uh, the superpowers win. Dusty Nikita win, beating Tully and Lex. And, um, of course, the big story, though, the big story was the return of Manon. And yeah. I I remember seeing it on television, and you could just feel the emotion in the building. You could oh, see yeah. the emotion in everybody in the ring. Tully was in the ring crying. And, and I, I, I mean, it's... It's one of those things where th that that's when everything got real right there. And, of course, you yeah. had seen Magnum's last match. You took a picture of him as he was leaving the right. building. 
And this is now six months later. I've got to find that picture. I saw John McAdam put up his picture of Ted DiBiase with the world title, so he's really put the pressure on yeah. me to dig out my, my big picture and get it up. Yeah. So I am currently looking for it. I just have a ton. I mean, I had like that little disc camera, and I mean, I would take a couple rolls at almost every show, so... I got a lot of pictures. Of course, I got that Rick Rude bloody picture in there, too. I'd like to find that and get it posted up because, again, not the most common occurrence. But what 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 was it like seeing Magnum come back? Well, I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking because, you know, I mean, you saw the car. I mean, and they were like, well, Magnum's going to – and I just thought – I don't think he's going to be able to come back from that, you know, just looking at the wreckage of the car. And I mean, it's just, you know, you could put it on right now and it'll jerk a tear. I mean, just to see him hobble out there and, you know, the people going crazy and man, it was, it was special. Cause uh, again, I think we've covered this quite a bit, but Magnum was a guy who was, you know, on the path to extreme greatness. I mean, we would be talking about him like we talk about Ric Flair and Barry Windham and guys like that had he uh, not had the accident, I believe. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was quite the moment. It was quite the moment. And it's just something that it would never be forgotten by people that was around. And because Mandem had that connection with so many people and just, yeah, just great. And well, he was that guy. I mean, he was slotted to be the top babyface. I mean, I think Dusty was going to take the step back and let Magnum be in that tippy top spot. And uh, man, it was it was devastating. You know, it's one of those things that you can't help but to feel bad about because what a remarkable athlete you know he was, and and to see him, you know, hobble out there like that, it is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, the business changed in a in an interesting way. Uh, the week before Crockett Cup, actually, as uh, Jim Crockett Promotions bought the Universal Wrestling Federation, and uh, the first uh, instance of their involvement took place at the TV tapings in uh, Oklahoma, where Big Bubba Rogers shows up as a missed your opponent against the one-man gang and beats him for the UWF t- heavyweight title. Then Alliance of Skandar Atbar. And then the next set of tapings after that is when we get the full Crockett crew coming in. And how much UWF are you watching this time? And what do you think about seeing the, the Crockett guys showing up in UWF? Um, all of it. I mean, like <laughs> I love the UWF and I'm, my friend had a satellite dish, so I pretty much saw everything from Power Pro to the other shows, and uh, I was I was a huge fan. As far as guys showing up, I was worried what was going to happen is exactly what happened, which is they just guzzled all those guys and really didn't do much with anybody except for Sting. And uh, it's it's really crazy that you know the UWF went down at that point when I mean. It was really great. I mean, all everything happening in the UWF at that point was was tremendous. I mean, they were they were do, doing as good as shows as they had done. It's just uh, the bottom fell out of the oil market and they couldn't draw in their area, I guess, or whatever. But uh, that's one of the things. Everybody from Eddie other, Gilbert other and Sting, and 
you know, Missy Hyatt and all that good stuff, Bubba and One Man Gang and Duggan and Gordy and a lot of good stuff going on. Well, are are you in the belief that it that sending Bubba in to win the UWF title kind of devalued that title since Bubba was, I mean, he was just a bodyguard for, for Cornette. I mean, he, he was. You know. And I mean, he turned out to be great and all that, but at the time, he was, you know, it was clearly, I, I mean, and I, I love the one-man gang. I think the one-man gang is, is, is great, one of my favorites. And uh, I thought he was the first, like, really big star I ever got to manage on the indies. And uh, he's just a great guy. And uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have done it that way, but there's a lot of stuff I wouldn't have done the way they did it with the UWF purchase. I mean, they really just kind of <sighs> – and I know they didn't want to treat them as equals, but they they could have given them a little more than they did. I think uh, they they pretty well guzzled them, and you know that was it. Well, I think what happened was, and you know, that when they when they took over, they they immediately started putting a lot of their guys in. But I think Dusty did actually get some confidence in Eddie Gilbert, and allowed Eddie Gilbert to to take control of the book, and. It wasn't long before the UWF kind of had their own identity again. And they didn't have a lot of the Crockett guys around. Barry Windham was like the guy, but, you know, he was the Western States champion at that point. So he was kind of believable. Right. But there wasn't all these Crockett guys coming in and anymore. And the UWF had a lot of their own guys. They were just owned by Jim Crockett Promotions. So they had a feel of they were a standalone group. And they left them that way for a few months until – you know, swallowing them up right. in, in the fall. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was definitely sad because 1986 UWF is one of the all time great years. In oh, so good. Yeah. So good. All the way television wise, all the way around, but the business was what it was. And they were having issues. Watts was wanting to get out. They were losing money. I mean, he was smart. Yeah. He got some money and, and got out. Absolutely. Before the bottom fell out. But, uh, yeah, I was I was always disappointed with the way that turned out because uh, you know, some of those UWF guys were really hot. And I think, you know, had they brought them in with a little more steam behind them, that we could have had some really fresh matchups that they didn't really seem to want to do. Well, the, like they just didn't want to give them too much credibility or something. The biggest mistake was they let DiBiase go, you know, and – if they would have kept DiBiase and paid him what he needed to be paid and promised him, you know, a series of flair, think about how different WF is without a, a, the Million Dollar Man character at that time. Yeah, well, I would hate to have been denied the Million Dollar Man because that's, that's one of my favorite WWF characters of all time without question. And I that's mean, true. I think it was a great opportunity for DiBiase to establish himself as – I'm as good as any of these guys you talk about as being the greats, and I think that uh, that he did get to do that, even though he never got a world title there either. Well, I mean, for a day, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, because we've seen the picture of him with it at ring in the ring now, yeah. so <laughs> he was champion for a day. But yeah, I mean, I, I huge, huge fan of Ted DiBiase, one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely. And the Million Dollar Man gimmick was, you know, Christ, <laughs> people kill their mother to have a gimmick like that oh i know now we go to may and uh two big angles on the may knife worldwide the new breed is 
started their feud up with Jimmy Valiant and Lasertron, where Chris Champion said that they were sent by the planet Cybertron to erase Lasertron from history. So we had that going on in President Dusty Rhodes in 2002. And then we have... And then, and then we have Dusty Rhodes talking about he had a bag of $50,000 that he would put against Tully Blanchard's $50,000 for a match. And this would be a month-long deal. So, first off, your thoughts on uh, the new breed Jimmy Van Legatron deal and uh, Dusty and his brown paper sack. Well, I mean, I thought that, that Lasertron and, and Valiant were the perfect, you know, first guys for them to get past. And, you know, I, uh, everything was, I mean, they were talking about being from the future. I mean, some of it sounds so preposterous and silly, but I don't know. I loved it at the time. Like, this is great. They've come back from the future. I mean, it's so dumb, but those guys were so effective selling it that it worked fine for me and I, I'm pretty much a stickler for realism so I, I I was definitely with it and you know of course Dusty with the bag of money and what that leads to with Magnum was one of those moments where my gosh I mean you know when Magnum's crying because Tully took the money and Dusty's like no it's on me and I, I mean that that's one of those Great, great things. That was like um, a whole episode of TV, wasn't it, where they did that match? Yeah, that was yeah. They that... did Dusty and Tully for a whole episode. Um, uh, it may have been for the whole episode, but it was definitely on there. And we're getting to that, but uh, okay. but yeah, that that yeah, that was uh, it was definitely a, a full match on television deal. But yeah, another, yeah, right. Chris Champion. I like how he would like name the stuff Cybertron, Ultra Madness, Galvatron, and, and all the Decepticons were supporting their uh, their battle against Cybertron. That's hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it's something that sounds like if somebody explained it to me, I would think, oh, I would hate that, but <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> also, during this week, is one of the all time great things. Ric Flair had bought a $15,000 for a coat for Precious. And he gives her the coat. She models it and walks off with the coat. And Flair, Flair, <laughs> Flair is kind of not not upset to begin with. But then he gets upset later on because she's not come back with the coat. And it leads to one of my favorite moments that you know, Jimmy and Precious are out there, and the Horsemen are all out there together, and they're giving giving them shit. And here comes Dusty, Ronnie Garvin, Jimmy Valiant. And maybe Wyndham all come out. Dusty gets in Flair's face, tells uh, tells Jimmy to get Precious away from there, and he starts yelling at Flair. So and it's just a great fucking moment. I that stuff I love too about Crockett that you didn't really get in a lot of other promotions is the you believe the baby faces were all friends with each other, and you believe they all right. stuck up stuck That's up for true. each other. You don't you, you didn't get that everywhere like you got it here. I yeah. love that. Yeah, that was a classic from Crockett Promotions, even all the way back into the seventies, where the baby faces would do interviews together on the set and stuff like that, and each one would take their turn and talk about it. And you really felt like, man, these baby faces are all bonded together. And then, of course, when they would do like the tags and the six man tags and stuff, it it really mattered because they would put like you know three different single feuds into these six man tags and. And everybody was like 
pleased with it. It wasn't like, oh, I wish we were just getting these singles matches. You were you were actually excited. That's how well they did of, you know, making these guys teammates, friends, <laughs> you know, in it together. We've got to stop these damn dirty bad guys. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I love that type of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's just really cool. Now, in the May 16th episode of World Championship Wrestling, we get a music video of the boys are back in town for the fabulous Freebirds as they are, of course, part of the buyout, and they're returning to Atlanta. They're going to face the Horsemen at the Omni. And uh, this is a big deal. I mean, yeah, the Freebirds had just worked the Omni for what? For UWF? Like, the week before the buyout? But uh, to have them around here... um. And especially them being in Atlanta, this was a big deal. And how how you how did you feel about seeing the Freebirds now coming to work for Crockett? I was I was incredibly excited. I mean, I'd been a fan of the Freebirds since they showed up in wrestling. I mean, I would say, I always say that I've loved a lot of wrestlers, but Ric Flair was the only wrestler that I ever thought, man, I wish I was him. And if there was a second guy to add to that list, it would be Michael Hayes. Like, I wanted to be Michael Hayes. Like, fuck, who didn't? <laughs> so I loved the Freebirds. And I remember that episode in the TBS studio where the birds are doing the interview talking about facing the horseman in the Omni that night. And I was just like pissing myself like oh my god <laughs> i would kill to be at the horseman versus the Freebirds. i hope i get to see that at some point because uh i remember I remember buddy starts going off of this right now you remember that movie the birds well it's horrifying they were the free birds and we could be horrified too. <laughs> god buddy just let michael talk <laughs> I, yeah, I love how in this era they, they, they buddy got to do have more speaking time, you know. <laughs> and the best was when Mark Lawrence. It was great. The best though. was when they were in war class in '88, and Mark Lawrence would always complain about Buddy Buddy Roberts' tainted breath, <laughs> tainted with alcohol, because you know Mark Lawrence is a man of the cloth, and God forbid that he had to be sitting around this drunk. Yeah, I bet the, the alcohol coming off of Buddy was strong. <laughs> yes, I bet it was. <laughs> the man was having a good time. Oh, absolutely. Now, a week later, <clears throat> on the syndicated shows, we get another exile uh, from UWF. Dark Journey makes her debut as Tully Blanchard's <laughs> new personal business secretary. <laughs> now, Dark Journey been babyface for a year now and here she comes in as Tully Blanchard's secretary and yeah they have, JJ's there and now Dark Journey's around uh did you think that she was like a necessary addition you think they should have had her in a different role I mean what did you think about Dark Journey showing up uh very little <laughs> and even less of her being with Tully and JJ I, mean, I just thought she was dead weight she didn't do anything at ringside she didn't talk well she wasn't particularly attractive so I really saw no upside to Dark Journey I mean she was just kind of there and I kind of thought this ain't gonna last long JJ ain't gonna give up his talking time to this girl who can barely string two sentences together. So, oh, so you, so you, you I was a Dark uh, Journey fan, huh? Not, not even a little okay. bit. Interesting. I know a lot of people, not lot even people a little bit. Dark Journey. Uh, 
for different reasons, but uh, well, Missy was 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 the one that that spoke to me as go. far as the the ladies went. Missy Hyatt was that first woman in wrestling that I just went, oh my god, look at her. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she takes my breath away. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, as I mean, <laughs> yeah, she, hey, you know her world class, man. I mean, when she's debuting world class, she was something else. There wasn't anybody in wrestling like Missy High, believe me. Believe me. No, no. I mean, the walking riot, Missy Hyatt. I mean, that's that's just hot. Great name. Great name. You can't beat that. Well, I think you were called the walking riot once upon a time, too, for different reasons. Well, in the city of Philadelphia, you were the walking people, riot. People did like to take a swing at me on occasion. I've never been able to figure out why. I, I can't believe it. You're such a nice person. Kind soul. <laughs> That's how I see well, myself, yeah. certainly. Well, for those of us that know you, yeah. <laughs> All right, on the uh, May, uh, May 30th Pro, it's announced that Rick Rude has left, and Ivan Koloff is replacing him with Manny Fernandez as the World Tag Team Champions. So Rude has left to go to the World Wrestling Federation. Um, I think one of the, the lost things of this era is we never really got Rick Rude as a solo guy in Crockett, which could have been money if they would have known how to use him right. And one thing that we didn't talk about in this show, which I'm I'm pissed that I didn't bring it up earlier, is do you remember the 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 weeks there? And it was like in February, March, when the Horsemen and Raging and Ravishing were cutting promos on each other in the studio. I mean, you would think they were setting something up, but it's actually some real life shit that they were cutting promos on each other. They were trading back and forth. And do you mm. remember that? I remember that. I did not know that this was a reality based thing. I just thought they went in a different direction instead of going with those matches, but they had no intention of doing the matches, is what <laughs> yeah, you're saying. They, they never were wrestled. Just sniping at each other. They never wrestled. It was like. They were taking their shots at each other. Rude was the one that started it. So, of course, Rick Rick, fought Rick fired back. And uh, this went on for like two weeks, two or three weeks. It it, it never led to any match. Well, I know Manny Fernandez certainly had issues with those oh, guys. Yeah. He's made that pretty clear as the years have gone by. Yeah. But uh, Rick Rude starting, it seems a little strange well, man and man but i guess you know everybody wanted to be in the main event and the horseman had a lock on that and even as world tag team champions they were probably finding it tough to to be on the tippy top so well, as as a guy who was no, <clears throat> known for his promos um when you do promos for promotion and you're kind of told okay you have bullet points you need to hit you need to talk about this and the other when you start to go into business for yourself, I mean, is that the the best thing to do or does it really matter? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you say something that shouldn't be said that in no way, shape or form could lead to a match or drawing money, then it's just a waste. But if it's something that can be picked up on later as a feud, like, oh, don't think I forgot what you said about me when you said blah, blah, blah. I think, you know, 
there is a positive, but but guys going into business for themselves usually turns out to be a disaster because it's usually because they're mad about something and their anger overtakes their common sense. And instead of going, this is my opportunity to take a shot at this guy, but I'm going to do it in a way that benefits the wrestling. Sometimes they just blurt something out that was completely unnecessary. And then, uh, that's, that's certainly not a positive, but I think, you know, it, it, it cuts both ways. There's a, there's definitely been times where, where guys have said stuff that turned out, you know, down the road to be able to be used as something. But, uh, these guys, PBS doing it, that just, you know, I don't know. Some people would say that reeks of unprofessionalism, but you know, at the end of the day, these are all real people with real issues. And, uh, you know, somebody's mad at somebody. Sometimes you got to say something about it. And what's a more effective place to, in front of the whole world, I guess. You know, and I kind of screwed it up too. What they, how they announced it was that Ivan was a third member of the team. So, and they played it off like this. They had in the can a tape of the Rock and Rolls versus Rude and Fernandez from a sh- yeah, that was from Columbia, South Carolina, and it was a non-title mm-hmm. match. Was that that show? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> so when they showed the clips, I knew like, oh well, that's cool because I was at yeah, that I was show. Yeah, get to that. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't switch no titles. How how do you? I mean, that that's really exposing the business right there, don't you think? Well, I mean, it's not the first time that it had happened, <clears throat> so I guess I didn't think a whole lot about it, and it was really weird because obviously, you know, Rube disappeared, and they didn't say anything, and of course, you know, when guys did that, it would be months before they would show up on WWF TV, and um, during this time period, I saw my very first WWF card in Augusta, Georgia oh, okay. with a Honky Tonk Man and Randy Savage as your main event. And Rick Rude was on the card. He came out and wrestled in just a regular match on the card. And it's like, well, <laughs> I was wondering where Rick Rude is. I know where he is now. I mean, obviously, I assumed he had gone to WWF, but uh, sure enough, he was on that show before he ever appeared on the TV. And we saw him there and we're like, oh, Rick Rude's here. But that was the first that was the first time the WWF came, you know, anywhere near Columbia or anything like that. They did a show in Augusta, Georgia. So of course we went and uh it was actually good. It was a good show. I mean, you had Savage and Honky Tonk as your main event. Uh and I mean, as far as the WWF went at that time, I uh Jesus Christ, I loved Randy Savage. I mean, who did Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was one of those guys, you know, cause, cause to me I always thought the, the, the Crockett stuff was worlds above the WWF, but then they got DiBiase and Savage, and I was like, ooh, you know, <laughs> yeah. they got two two heavy hitters that would have fit in nicely here in the Carolinas. Yeah, hate we didn't get those, yeah. but I think it worked out for the best that they were in New York anyway. Now they also were starting up a feud between Lex Luger and Nikita Koloff uh, for the U.S. title. Oh yeah, and. Uh, How'd you feel about that pairing? Because it wasn't going to make for the best wrestling matches, but as far as bodies go, I mean, there's two impressive dudes. Yeah, I mean, and they were both crazy over, and this is Luger, you know, on the up, and Nikita basically solidifying himself as a top baby face, and, uh, you know, we get uh, more into that as we get towards the bash and stuff, but, yeah, I was a I was a big fan of that because, I mean, 
these are two big heavy hitters. You know, and they were they were pounding on each other pretty good. You know, Lex wasn't the most physical guy, but uh, I do recall him and Nikita hitting each other pretty hard with forearms and clotheslines and stuff like that. I mean, they weren't sugar titting around out there. No, they weren't. And speaking of uh, people hitting each other hard. At a show at Beckley, West Virginia on May 29th, the Rock and Roll Express faced the Midnight Express. And during the match, a fan by the name of Roy Massey threw an object into the ring and struck Eaton Lane. And moments later, Massey suffered fractured bones in his face from a punch by Stan Lane, who was later arrested and charged with two counts of battery. Now, you have been in situations like this before, I'm sure, many times. Um, it's happened. <laughs> Do you think that Lane was in his right to do that, or you think he overreacted, or was he? he... I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I know the answer. I think if a fan puts his finger on you in any way, shape, or form, you are free to smash his face with the most violent thing you can hit him with. I mean, people should be greatly discouraged from involving themselves in what's going on. I mean, if you're an older guy who's lived through the era and understands that people have been stabbed and nearly died, you're not taking any chances with some crazy fan because they may have a knife. Yeah. And so if a fan attempts to put his hands on you, he should be checked and he should be checked very violently to discourage anyone else from thinking of doing the same thing. It's weird how that works though, because usually once it happens once, it encourages other people to do it. Even if they got their jaw broke, they still go, yeah, but that guy did it, so I'm going to do it. And uh, I had it happen quite a few times when I was working for Jay Eagle, and uh, no one ever got the better of me, let's say that. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's I'm, a good thing. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, you kind of understand where Stan was coming from. Um, well, sure. I mean, you're talking West Virginia. Here's some rowdy folk. Well, I mean, Jim Cornette, you know, West Virginia. I mean, there's a history there anyway. I mean, uh, this is the first thing. There's, there's stuff that happens later. I mean, <laughs> that town. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you don't, if you don't find some hillbillies looking to fight, West Virginia is going to be a choice place to find them. I mean, they are, they are ready, willing, and able to go. Absolutely. So, it's not a big surprise that happened there. And I'm, I know that that ended up costing the guys a good bit of money. I think Crockett paid for their, their lawyers and stuff, but I think they still ended up costing them a few grand and stuff. And I mean, again, it's one of those things where they defended themselves because some asshole wanted to get involved and they ended up paying money because of it, which is, you know, discouraging. Yeah. All right. June 6th in Greensboro, the $100,000 challenge. Tully Blanchard defeats Dusty oh, Rhodes yeah. by countout. After Dusty uh, had Tully beat, D JJ takes the bag of 50000 and runs with it because Magnum can't chase him down. And uh, Dusty goes after him. He was never informed that he lost the match. He thought he won the match. And we had the very emotional moment in the back where uh, Dusty won his damn money and Magnum was crying, trying to apologize to Dusty. Oh, God, that was heartbreaking. I mean, yeah, this is a just tremendous <laughs> stuff. 
I can feel it just talking about it right now. I mean, it was one of those ones where you're just like, oh, my God, because Magnum's so apologetic and Dusty's so angry. And again, that word real rears its ugly head. You go, oh, shit. You know, man, they, they went too far. Might have gone too far. I mean, and and this was supposed to be starting something in the newsletter set of a heel turn for Tommy Young, which, you know, Tommy Young mm. always had that thing where he was, people thought that he was Flair's referee in a way because he always seemed to benefit Flair. And do you think that was a, a missed opportunity that they didn't go full, full forward with him as a heel referee? Or do you think that would have been too much for that era? I don't think it would have been right for Crockett in 87. And I, I thought Tommy Young was a great referee, obviously, but I think that, uh, I don't think they needed that. You know, I think it would have been more than, I mean, everything was still treated really serious despite the new breed coming back from the future. But in 87, you know, the stuff on top was still, you, you, it felt real. Like you could sink your teeth into it. I think the heel referee stick would, would not have been, right for that time and i'm not anti heel referee i just don't think it would have been right for for that time yeah yeah now um i uh when i worked for nwa charlotte they they had tommy young and i got to sit with him and chat with him a lot and i mean my god he had he had the best stories i mean his stories were great i mean he had seen it all and i was like you should write a book. Like you, you really, uh, you, you got a lot of stuff. He did a good shoot interview with high spots. I know, I do know that. So yeah, he should definitely do something. Okay. Yeah. He did a really good shoot. Yeah. I need to, I need to track that down and watch that. uh, He really had some great stories. Absolutely. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a great referee. Yeah. And that aired on TV the next week. Cause that was a Saturday and aired the following Saturday. And yes, it was on actually, it was on one show in full, and then the other show they showed clips of. So it was on both Worldwide and Pro that day. And, um, mm. yeah, I think it was on Pro as the whole match. But, because uh, you had the yellow ring apron. But, yeah, it was a hell of a match. And Dusty and Tully were great together. Angle was tremendous. Yeah. Just really solid stuff, man. Really solid stuff. Greensboro was red hot. So, you know, just a, a perfect storm of everything involved there. Now, Right. During that week after, they had a lot of problems with car wrecks. Jerry Taylor, of course, is part of the UWF thing. He got in a car wreck and with Eddie and Missy, and he had to have six inches of his small intestine and four inches of his large intestine removed and his appendix. Jeez. And then two days later, the new breed wreck, where uh, Sean Royal got the burns and Chris Champion broke his arm in two places. So just mm. coming off the Magnum thing, that's like, wow. Car wrecks. And this promotion, yeah. man, it's a curse. Kind of a curse in a way. Yeah, the, yeah those are tragic. I mean, just, hmm. Yeah. What could have been? Exactly. You know, I mean, because really the, the new breed just lost all their steam. And I mean, Chris was back out there, and it was great because he had the cast with, like, the, <laughs> the electronic stuff all over his cast and everything, which was really awesome, but... Yeah, they uh they never were able to recoup that momentum they were building. I mean, I just mm, that is a shame. Now, all throughout June, they're talking about the Great American Bash. They're really you know prepping everybody for the Great American Bash, and Jim Crockett announces the match beyond. 
is taking place in Atlanta. Now, nobody really knew what this was. Um, and then they, they eventually found out, you know, that of what it would be. But they're building a cage. <laughs> The, that great thing where they're welding everything yes. together and stuff, that commercial, they're building a cage to hold eight men. <laughs> that, that was a great voiceover. Yeah, yeah <sighs> did you think that was a great way of building up that match, just the way they were, were going with that? I, I know I was excited as as I could possibly be like, yeah, I was of the impression, like this is going to be the greatest match in the history of pro wrestling. Like I will be buying my tickets the second they go on sale kind of thing. You know, again, the, the year before we had the Starcade 86 with the scaffold, which was, you know, it just immediately struck me as, Oh my God. And then here we are six months later with the bash and the war games. And it was the same thing of, Oh my God, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, I mean, wow. we're going to have all these guys in a double cage and everybody's going to bleed. So I was on cloud nine. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I couldn't have thought of a better match, you know, like they, they could not have come up with an idea that would have hooked to be stronger than the war games. I mean, still, you know, to this day. A war games match is one of those things that, that I genuinely get excited about, whether it's two rings, one ring, as long as you got some, some teams and some heat. I love me a war games. Absolutely. Well, in the, the end of June, and this is where we'll leave here. Uh, to, to tell you the difference in how Crockett is, you know, we talked about that, that early house show lineup that you saw in Greenville and talk about the army. Well, they had a show in Greenville on yeah. June 29th. Listen to the difference in the lineup here. Jenny Brown over David Diamond. Gladiator 2 over Ricky Nelson. Nelson Roll over Gladiator 1. Italia Stan over Brody Chase. Midnight over Valiant and Lasertron. Barry Windham over Luger by DQ. And Rock and Roll is going to a 60-minute draw with Arn and Tully. Top half's good, but that undercard is weak. And you got and, and you, got, you yeah. look at it. All right, they bought out Florida. So they they're sending talent to Florida. They bought out Watts. So they're sending talent to UWF. So the talent is spread out in these different places, and the Carolinas is kind in, in their home area, kind of getting the short end of the stick a little bit. What do you think about that? A little bit. Well, I mean, you know, Greenville was so weird that way even prior to this, where sometimes you would have this stack card of like, oh my God, there's like five main events. And then you would come back the next week and you'd have a good main event, a decent semi, and then the direct squad would fill out the rest <laughs> of the card. So, I mean, they were notorious for, you know, it's either, you know, feast or famine. I mean, you always got a great main event. I'm going to count Ric Flair and Barry or Brad Armstrong. That was not a great main event, but it was Ric Flair. So it was good enough, but um, yeah, it was weird. But I mean, at this point, as we started to get later in the year, Columbia and Greenville, you know, my, my staple shows that I always went to started to be more like, Ooh, there's two good matches and then nothing else. Yeah. 
and then uh you know if you we didn't really get many more of the the b and c shows like we were getting you know like at rock hill and sumter and stuff like that where you might get barry Wendell versus ivan koloff and Baron Von Raschke versus Manny Fernandez is your double main event or something. And um, even those fell off a little bit to where, you know, you would have one match and then everything else is, is underneath guys and stuff. And um, But I mean, tickets were so cheap then. It was, it was hard to complain. I mean, we're still paying, you know, five, seven fifty, you know, stuff like that for a ringside seat until about this point when things started jumping up to ten and twelve and oh, it's the great American bash, let's get you for twenty and stuff like that, which, you know, ended up being when I started to sour on things as we move into the, the next year. But at this point I'm still really high on everything and really excited about the war games and excited about the UWF guys being in. Cause I liked a lot of them. And, uh, we're, we're really still at that, that peak point where, you know, despite that Greenville undercard, I was not discouraged in any way. Cause I mean, we got Tully and Arn against the rock and roll in a 60 minute draw. So it's not like I left the building feeling cheated. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, I mean, I hope people don't leave this show. And again, with the bash on the horizon, you know, which had 86 is great. American bash had delivered. I mean, my God, it's one of my favorite things in wrestling that I've ever seen. And then Starcade. So as we were getting closer to this bash, I had nothing but highest patience for it to equal or possibly surpass the previous year. Absolutely. So, we uh, will end here, and we will pick this back up in the future with the second half of 1987. Talk about the Great American Bash. Talk about War Games and the you know the television show they aired before War Games, which was quite the show. We'll talk about uh, <clears throat> how the you know the UWF and Florida offices became extinct. Ronnie Garvin becoming the World Heavyweight Champion. Starcade 87 and a whole lot more. So we'll do that on our next go around on uh, this series of Exile. Jeff, um, before we go, um, anything you want to put out there and uh, uh, announcement wise or your, your current um, in the business? Let's see. Um, well, I basically have, I won't call it retirement because wrestling is never say never, but I have no desire and I, I feel certain that I will not step foot in around a wrestling ring until after this year's Super Bowl. Um people can follow me on Twitter at Jeff G Bailey One. They can watch videos of me on YouTube on the NWA Elite YouTube channel. And um I'd just like to say I recently spoke with the people's Captain Gunner Miller, who's working very hard on this comeback and uh don't forget about the people's captain. Don't sleep on the Absolutely. people's captain because 2019, when Gunnar Miller returns, he's coming back with a vengeance, and it's going to be amazing. And uh, I couldn't be happier or prouder of what he's doing to get ready and get back in the ring. And I think he's going to be thrilled when he gets back because he really is a special talent. So please don't forget about him while he's gone recuperating from his knee injury because he will be back better than ever. Absolutely. Gunnar Miller was on the track to becoming one of the top guys 
on the independent circuit around the country, you know, and now absolutely, and, uh, I got all the faith. He came back from injury once in football. He can do it in wrestling. So uh, I got faith. Absolutely. In, I got no faith doubt in about captain. it. He can, he, can, he can handle his business. All right, Jeff. Absolutely. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you back on with me, and we'll try to get you back on quicker this time than we did last time. I try. I got to get more exiles done. Now, between the sheets, it's kind of, it could kind of become a, a thing where it takes takes a lot of time from me. So I got to try to make some more time for exiles and get some of these out quicker. Believe me, but uh, I love doing this. Absolutely. We love the exiles. We can all listen to them, you know, in one city usually, <laughs> unlike between the sheets, which, you know, yeah. is an endurance test. Uh, it's the 90-minute time limit, Matt. Let's keep these exiles coming. <laughs> yes, it's that 90-minute time limit of the uh, podcast. That's for sure. Oh, man. But anyway, thank you, brother, for, for being on with me. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Kick it!